This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yusin, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And tonight I am flying solo. My dear colleagues and friends, Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein, are off for the evening. So I'm really happy to be here and just want to tell you listeners that in the first hour, I'll be talking with Leslie Crutchfield. And she is the author of a book called How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. She's been studying so change over the past three years and is taking a good in-depth look at change and has come up with the conclusion that successful change is, guess what, you're going to know the answer, an act of leadership. And in the second hour, I'm going to be speaking with uh, one of this year's Lippman Family Prize honorees, and he is Jacob Leaf, co-founder and CEO of Ubuntu Pathways. Ubuntu Pathways is a nonprofit organization that takes orphaned and vulnerable children in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, from cradle to career. So we have uh, an evening tonight that has a theme, and that theme really is social impact and change. So I'm really delighted to welcome our first guest on the show, Leslie Crutchfield. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm really delighted. And I'm Leslie, I'm just going to say a word or two about you and then just dive into your book and our, our interview together. You are, as I said, Executive Director of Georgetown University's Global Social Initiative, and the Global Social Initiative is part of the business school, the McDonough School of Business. You are also the author of How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. Uh, in the past, you've written two previous books, Forces for Good, The Six Practices of High-Impact Nonprofits, and that was with Heather McLeod Grant. And before that, Do More Than Give, The Six Practices of Donors Who Change the World. So, so Leslie, I'm just curious, how were you drawn to this topic of change and social change? Well, you're right. The book's all about social change and movements and, and how those changes have happened. And um, I will say, when I started writing the book, I didn't have any anticipation that movements would matter as much as they do at hmm. this very moment, right? You know, as we uh, came out last month with how change happens, you know, in the headlines, you've got young people from Parkland organizing the next wave of the gun reform movement. You know, as we closed out 2017, the Me Too movement topped the time person of the year list. Mm -hmm. and, and now, of course, you've got Fortune magazine with its 50 greatest world leaders in the top three are movements or right. collective leadership models. So it's it's a, a moment uh, that we're in. Um, and I got interested in movements uh, several years ago coming out of the research from my first book, Forces for Good. Forces for Good, the Six Practices of High-Impact Nonprofits, was a four-year study of high-impact nonprofits and what differentiated the best 
NGOs from the rest. And the big aha that came out of that research was that great nonprofits build movements, not just their organizations. The, you know, the, the best nonprofits were dri- driving for education reform or to establish national service as a, a, a norm in this country or um, make poverty housing politically, economically, religiously, social unacceptable as Habitat for Humanity set out to do. So we studied these nonprofits, and they all were trying to build movements, not just shore up their organizations and kind of replicate and scale out. So then I started thinking, well, what makes a great movement? So good. Well, and then we do want to talk about your current book, but now you've got me curious. Did your second book come out from the first? Was there a connection? The first book, Do More Than Give, The Six Practices of Donors, who changed the world. Well, actually, it was, yeah, that was my second book, and the that did come out of the original research for Forces for Good. Ah, very when good. When I was studying the nonprofits, and that book, Forces for Good, came out in 2007, so it's so just a decade old now. Um, the, the, one of the questions that I was getting a lot from nonprofit leaders, from funders, foundation leaders, corporate leaders was, well, if we want to fund nonprofits, what should we do? And originally I was answering, well, you know, as I did philanthropic advising and consulting with companies, you should look for nonprofits that do the six things that we identified in our research, because that'll give you more bang for your buck. But then I started thinking, well, foundations and donors, high net worth individuals can also employ these practices. So we looked at how funders, foundations, uh, high net worth individuals can catalyze change. Um, and that, that book was really a, a spinoff of the first one. But this central question of movements, you know, whether, you know, with any big social problem, whether you're a billionaire like Bill Gates and you got billions of dollars to put into something or you're a nonprofit, no single entity can solve the big complex problems that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's climate change or obesity or gun violence prevention. So you've got to have a cross-sector approach, and that involves collective leadership models and movements. Very good. And I... You know, I was taken in your uh, introduction. I really appreciated your opening illustration about smoking and the way in which we now view smoking compared to a number of decades ago. So I would you would you just begin with that? Because I think it is a wonderful illustration of how dramatic a change we have seen. Well, I agree. Smoking is a, a really remarkable example in fact, that social change that happened at the turn of this century is the single most important public health change. No other social change has saved more lives or prevented more disease and suffering than the abandonment of smoking in this country. Um, so that's worth a pause. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, and, and the reason it um, came to pass, you know, it didn't just go out of fashion was trendy at one point and then, you know, not sexy at another point. I mean, this was the work of decades and decades of deliberate systematic advocacy and um, leadership, as we'll, as we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that particular issue and cause was challenging because, you know, not only did you have a kind of a social norm around smoking, but you had a very powerful, well-resourced industry uh, on the opposite side of that movement. Right. So it when you have a very powerful entrenched enemy or group of opposition against you, mm-hmm. it becomes much harder to achieve the changes that you seek in the world. 
Very good. And just along with smoking, you also give a few, you tick off a few other uh, illustrations of what you call changes that have happened. And so what might others be for our listeners? So the big ones that we looked at, and I should say, we were looking at the time period from the 1980s until around the mid-2010s. So that, you know, 30-year period at the turn of the 21st century. We wanted to understand how changes happen in the modern context, right? So there's tons of books and studies that are really fruitful to read around the civil rights movement mm-hmm. or the first Earth Day and, and, and those 1960s and 70s movements. There's been less research um, in the more recent movements. So, so that's the time period we studied. And so the big changes that we looked at were the abandonment of smoking, the passage of LGBTQ marriage equality, the gun rights expansion. So the gun rights movement has been as successful as expanding access and ownership and Second Amendment freedoms as the tobacco control movement has in reversing smoking. So you've seen these (laughs) equal and opposite, you know, um, movements there. Mm -hmm. We also looked at, you know, in the realm of the environment, Acid rain. By mm-hmm. by the turn of the 21st century, we have pretty much eliminated acid rain from North America. Um, huge problem in the 90s going into the 2000s. That's, that's totally flipped. So why is it that we were able to solve that environmental toxin, but now we're stuck on carbon, right, mm-hmm. and the climate right. action? So we really were looking at changes that happened and also in the Sherlock Holmes spirit, the changes that didn't happen. You know, <laughs> right. what are the dogs that didn't bark in the middle of the night? Why has gun control uh, been historically uh, relatively weak compared to the NRA mm-hmm. and gun rights movements? Um, and, and, and through that comparison, we really learned a lot of what differentiates some of the front runners from the runners up. Very good. And uh, and I won't dwell here too long because I know we don't want to make it overly academic for our listeners, but I was curious about your research approach and you talk about taking a systems approach. Would you say just a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, it was a bottom-up uh, research process. We worked with a team of 20 different uh, staff and graduate students from Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative, uh, where I now serve as executive director. And we, you know, basically said, first, the unit of analysis originally in this book was not movements. It was changes. Hmm. What are the changes that have happened? Sometimes it takes an entire movement to affect that change. Other times it takes more of a campaign. You know, for hmm. instance, the the change of that we've seen of polio elimination in 99.9% of the world. A lot of people wouldn't call that a movement. It's more of a, a sustained mm-hmm. campaign. Or even in the LGBT advocacy community, you know, you have a larger movement for LGBT equality, and the marriage equality campaign was a part of that movement. So okay. Some of that gets into terminology. But we, you know, so we picked um, a, a short list, uh, half a dozen to eight changes that happened, and then a similar list and length of changes that didn't happen or were just emerging. Mm-hmm. I and like the we, way you call them in progress. <laughs> in progress, right? Yes. All these things can, can flip in a, in a decade. And um, we, we interviewed leaders from all these movements, the primary movers in these, and we tried to take it from all sides. So in the tobacco control, we talked to people who had uh, represented Philip Morris 
And we talked to the tobacco control activist and at the grassroots level and the grass tops level. And um, we had a, a, a script, a kind of interview guide asking key questions and then started looking for patterns once we had spoken with enough movement leaders to try and do, kind of tease out, well, what, what are the winning movements seem to be doing that the others are not or aren't doing as well? And that's where the six practices in How Change Happened evolved each chapter is a kind of best practice that um, successful movements embrace and less successful movements don't do as much or so well. Very good. Well, I want to jump into those practices, and I am going to invite listeners to join me so that I'm not completely solo here. So if you've got a question about how change happens, please call one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. And I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the pleasure tonight of speaking with Leslie Crutchfield about her book, How Change Happens. So, Leslie, the very first one is Turn Grassroots Gold. So, say a little bit about what you mean by that. The grassroots part of any movement is the single most important thing you got to get right if you want to win. Okay. And that's why that's the first chapter in the book. And it was really surprising to us as we looked at these movements that some movements nurture and uh, bring along and amplify their grassroots and others don't. Um, and, and, and when you fail to do that, you really have a lost opportunity to advance your cause. So let me give an example. Oh, good. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about guns. Uh, obviously, that's in the headlines a lot today sure. with the Never Again movement and mm-hmm. um, Second Amendment proponents uh, battling it out in the headlines and mm-hmm. in the streets and, you know, um, through marches and demonstrations, walkouts. It's all happening now. So when you look at the grassroots aspects of gun control versus the gun rights movements, it doesn't look the same way it does to the casual observer. If you just read the media headlines, first of all, uh, but the predominance of coverage goes to gun control or gun violence prevention, as they're often calling it now. And, you know, and it's more favorable. Uh, part of that has to do with the fact that the vast majority of American voters, 97% of voters, say they want tighter gun laws, mm-hmm. according to the Quinnipiac polls, right? So as long as they've been tracking that, it's it's been going up. But the the policies that we have in place in the United States are the opposite of what the public says they want, right? Now, why is that? It yeah. turns out that the NRA has been exceptionally shrewd at mobilizing and amplifying its grassroots, and the gun control movement has not. And that might come as a surprise because it doesn't look that way in the headlines. At the time of the Sandy Hook school shooting massacre, Mm -hmm. that tragedy that killed 26 students and educators in Newton, uh, Connecticut. Um, At that point in time, that was 2012, so that was about six years ago, The at that moment in time, if you just took a snapshot, the NRA had already grown to nearly 5 million members, um, and they had about 150,000 active, organized field operators out in the field. At that time, the biggest gun control group was Brady. They only had one-tenth the size of supporters. Brady, at its peak, had around a half a million members. So you had this huge imbalance at the grassroots level in terms of 
individuals, you know, supporters, donors, advocates that were mobilized and ready to go out to a town hall meeting or a state legislator or, you know, march on Washington, whatever, whatever you had. After Sandy Hook, um, a mom in, in the Anna Shannon Watts, stay-at-home mom with four kids, you know, just was fed up and just said this, this, the Sandy Hook massacre was too much. She is actually a native of Colorado, had not lived through, but been part of the Columbine era. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I, I want to join the gun control movement. She went looking for something like MAD, you know, Mothers Against yeah. Driving. She couldn't find anything. And that's because at that time, the you know, the, the Brady organization really wasn't set up for chapters and to be a movement, right? So she started a Facebook page, and that became Moms Demand Action. By 2014, Shannon Watts' group merged up with Mayor Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns to create what we now know as Every Town for Gun Safety. Now, since 2014, Every Town for Gun Safety, at the time I finished my research last fall, they were at 4 million members, and I recently received notification that um, post-Parkland, they're at nearly 5 million members. So for the first time in Mm -hmm. modern gun history, There's an equal and opposite uh, movement on the grassroots end of gun reform combating the NRA and the gun rights side. Oh, boy, that's a beautiful illustration. All right. So um, so your <laughs> advice to those who want to catalyze a movement is to the very first step is to make the most of your, your grassroots um, members. Exactly. And this is where, you know, a lot of the leadership challenges come in because the power of a movement comes from the networks of individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, as mm-hmm. individuals at the local level, you know, are, are relatively powerless, right? Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, living in one town, you have your family and friends and you can, you know, vote once. You can show up at a town hall meeting. But it's the power of connecting, obviously, mm-hmm. many individuals together in common cause that enables, you know, a relatively powerless individual collectively to come up against some really powerful industry and um, other kinds of opponents. Mm. Um, so you got to nurture and invest in the grassroots. And that means, you know, sending money, resources, you know, helping to organize them, give them tools, connect them to each other. All of the successful movements that we studied um, had at their core these grassroots networks of victims and survivors, if you're a public health issue, whether mm-hmm. you're, you know, drunk driving crash victims and family members or gun violence prevention or, you know, you lost a family member to smoking of cancer, you know, uh, non-smokers, right, all those things. So those networks became very, become very important. And you can nurture them and kind of turn them gold, as we write about in the book, or that you can let them kind of fade to brown mm-hmm. and they they require um you know feeding and watering and yeah. nurturing to be able to grow and when you say you who is the you well in each movement it 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 really depends um i mean most movements really first of all sprout up from the grassroots and it becomes right. a matter of you know not becoming too top heavy or mm-hmm. bottom heavy and we could talk about that you know when we get into the be leaderful um, right. aspects of what we write about. Um, but, you know, with, with tobacco control, you know, some of the very first activists were local groups of concerned citizens who 
got together to ban smoking in cities in Arizona and Minnesota and then Berkeley. And then out of Berkeley grew what was then Californians for non-smokers' rights. Mm-hmm. And then they took that to a national group, Americans for non-smokers' rights. So it was first the non-smokers who were feeling and believing that they were suffering and getting sick from the secondhand smoke. Right. right? And, and, and then in the 1990s, you had the establishment of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids in 1990, the mid-1990s. Um, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation provided some seed money. Uh, my colleague at Georgetown University, Bill Novelli, was the founding president. Matt Myers now runs it. And um, that organization was set up to tackle the youth smoking challenge and became the national uh, kind of orchestrator of the policy and social marketing campaigns that then were eventually helped turn around the smoking cause. So in the smoking, you know, um, case, it's those kind of grassroots. Obviously, for gun rights, it's NRA members, you know, people who own guns, care about guns, and protecting mm-hmm. their Second Amendment freedom. So it just kind of depends, movement to movement. Right. So the U then can be the leader of uh, one of the grassroots organizations, and the advice would be to look up, look around, see what other like-minded organizations are out there, reach out, because your network will be stronger than any anyone individually. Yes, and, and the other thing is when you think about growing, you know, we saw that the successful movements kind of proliferated chapter by chapter. You know, so when Candy Leitner, the founder of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or MAD, got started, you know, she was advocating in California to tighten up um, drunk driving laws and policies and also trying to change norms. But when other victims and survivors of drunk driving crashes and their families wanted to do something, you know, she said, start a chapter. Here's a little toolkit. And then, you know, by within a few years, she had 350 chapters uh, proliferating around the country. Each chapter was locally autonomous. And, you know, what MAD, the central organization, did was just give some general guidelines, right? Like, find the judges in your community, Mm. uh, work Mm -hmm. with them to start tightening up sentencing, uh, law enforcement. Are they really going after drunk drivers, you know, sobriety checkpoints? Then they also were advocating for policy changes like um, lowering the blood alcohol unit level of um, which would qualify as drunk. Um, and, and many other things. But it was start more chapters, right? right. Um, if it was donate to the organization, it wasn't donate to me at Central. Right. It was get your local um, network going. Very good. And I think we're actually starting to talk about your second recommendation, and that is, and I, I love the recommendation, sharpen your 10, 10, 10, 20 equal 50 vision. Sure. It's a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but it's great. Say a little more. <laughs> that that whole concept it gets at the idea that the United States of America isn't one monolithic federation, right? It's 50 individual states, and ev- almost every one of those states is unique in its policy environment, in its mm-hmm. economy, in its cultural attitudes, you know, all, all these things. So, so when you're trying to create a big national sweeping social change, a big mistake that a lot of movement make is – they try and go for that, you know, big federal 
one stroke of a pen and all of a sudden you know everything's mm-hmm. going to change and they have a march on washington and they think if they can just get congress to pass this law when in fact when you look at the data and you look at movements that have won they all didn't start out that way the successful ones go state by state and tailor their advocacy and their movements to what they can do to get progress in each state and that 10 10 10 20 equals 50 rubric actually comes straight out of the playbook of the LGBT marriage equality movement. Oh, okay. Say more. So this this actually popped up. Uh, there's a story that actually is, takes place back in 2005. So um, more than a dozen years ago, you know, a marriage equality did not look the way it does today. Back then, you know, the movement was really on the rocks. You had DOMA. President Clinton had signed a federal law that would ban gay marriage. You had 17 states with ballot referendums underway to try and ban gay marriage. California had already done a flip-flop, so they had elected to pass gay marriage. Then they repealed it. Oh. And then, hmm. um, and so they were, they had taken it away. In fact, the only state in 2003 where it was anywhere near legal to get married was Massachusetts, but uh, right after that passed, a vociferous opposition was organized. Mitt Romney, you know, the the future Republican uh, candidate, um, uh, the Catholic Church, were organizing a huge um, and powerful resistance to try and repeal it in Massachusetts. So, so the marriage equality movement was on the rocks, and you know, at that moment, it did not look inevitable that you were going to have LGBT marriage. It looked impossible. And so they had this convening of some of the movement leaders uh, in Jersey City, New Jersey, and a mega donor, Tim Gill, had kind of convened them, brought them together. And they, they sat down and they just, you know, laid it all out on the table and said, you know, we're, we're really up against a hard place. What are we going to do to move this thing forward? And they started to have a, they just did a thought experiment. Well, what, what could we get done? And they said, what if we took 10 states <laughs> and we actually tried to go for full marriage? you know, like New York or Massachusetts, where it's more liberal. Let's take 10 states and just try and get civil unions. It's separate. It's not quite equal to marriage, but it's better than what we've got, you know. And then 10 states, one other strategy. And then the balance of states, 20, all let's do is try and get LGBT discriminatory laws off the books. I mean, a lot of states Mm -hmm. still had sodomy laws and all all this stuff. So they said, let's take each state and, and help it make a, baby step, an incremental step forward. But the sum of that is that the momentum in the country then was moving towards marriage equality. So that by the time the Supreme Court in 2015 was hearing the landmark case that decided marriage equality, you know, most of the U.S. states had already moved in this direction. Um, And then, um, and that same 10-10-10-20 strategy has been employed by the gun rights movement, uh, drunk driving, all of the movements we studied. So um, Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily call it that, but that's in effect what they're doing. Oh, very good. Well, Leslie, we're going to take just a very short break. And after the break, I would love to pick up this thread and talk about your third recommendation, and that is change hearts and policy. I'm Ann Greenhall, and you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We will be right back. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the ways in which we can make change happen. And the first, turn grassroots 
gold. The second, sharpen your 10, 10, 10, 20, 50 vision. And the third is change hearts and policy. And so I'd love to pick up right there and just have you speak a little bit about changing hearts and policy. Sure. So, you know, the emphasis there is on the end. you got to change hearts and policy. And we framed it that way because a lot of times when movements and campaigns are struggling for resources and they've got to make tough choices, they often will just go for that policy advocacy, right? But, you know, we found that the winning movements deliberately and systematically go about trying to change hearts, pull heartstrings, change people's attitudes, beliefs around an issue. And and it shows, uh, our research shows that, you know, when you change people's hearts and minds around an issue, then when the policy or the law changes, then they're already uh, favorable and mm-hmm. believe that that change is right, right? So um, and we looked at a range of ways that movements do this. I think one of the best examples of it in the book is the tobacco control movement. So when the tobacco control grassroots activists and the campaign for tobacco-free kid leaders were um, kind of ramping up their strategies, they recognized that it wasn't going to be just about, you know, trying to regulate tobacco, trying to get excise taxes passed at the state level. You know, of course, there was research that showed that if you increase the price per pack of cigarettes by enough, most kids just can't afford it. So that was a good way to stop smoking or prevent them from from smoking, even though it was kind of a blunt economic tool. Right. Um, And it got a lot of resistance from libertarians and others, but, and conservatives. Um, But they also realized that the, the, the way to win, they had to beat the enemy. And the enemy in this case, or the opposition, wasn't just the tobacco companies, right? It was the Marlboro Man. It Mm. was Joe Camel, these big, iconic brands and images that people love and identify with, right? So so they had to make smoking as uncool and unsexy as Mm. the marketing of the tobacco companies were making it. Um, And and it was pervasive and, you know, the proliferation is remarkable. There was a study done at the height of the smoking rates um, among teens and among certain communities, particularly poorer communities, there was a higher name recognition of Joe Camel than Santa Claus. Oh, wow. Mm. So, you know, and they targeted youth and they Mm -hmm. had specific cartoons and messages and ways to try and attract kids and, um, and, and obviously keep adults hooked. And so, so, Tobacco control said, okay, we gotta, we not only have to change policy, we gotta change norms. We gotta make smoking uncool. So when you look at a lot of the very effective marketing campaigns that came out, came out of tobacco control, you know, a really popular one now on YouTube is the Catmageddon video that hmm. the Truth Initiative put together. And it's so effective, you can Google it and look it up, and it's basically a silly cat video with cats dressed up in pirate costumes and cats playing the piano. And, and it's really funny. And the punchline at the end of the ad is, you know, smoking causes cancer in pets. Smoking equals cancer equals no pets, no pet videos. And, of course, for young people, I mean, I've got an 11-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and those oh. teens and tweens <laughs> are on YouTube a lot. Right. right? And, and it just goes viral. So they, you know, and it, they internalize this, and, and, and that's one of the reasons why smoking rates for young people are under 6% today. The next-gen, mm-hmm. late-stage millennials, next-gen 
uh, young people are going to potentially be the generation that quits smoking for good, right? Mm, so, that's just and, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's these yeah. savvy marketing messages that mm-hmm. get at what kids really care about. And they're not those old kind of ho-hum PSAs that say, don't smoke, it's bad for you. You know, it's been shown that those public health messages that are well-intentioned and correct mm-hmm. never work. You've, you've got you've to come up with your equivalent of Joe Camel to, to sway people to your side. Mm, that's so good. All right. Now, how about um, those who oppose us, our, our adversaries? How do, we, how do we deal with them? Well, th- that next chapter in the book is called Reckon with Adversarial Allies. And it gets into the idea that, you know, all movements face all kinds of obstacles and opposition. Sometimes it's a, you know, a big industry, whether it's tobacco or guns or what have you. But, you know, sometimes you don't really face an organized opposition. Like with polio, hmm. there isn't a corporate interest that's out there that stands to benefit if polio continues, right? So so then you're up against apathy and accessibility and other problems. But what we saw in all these movements is that whether you're winning or struggling, you have all this competition and conflict within your field. Right. So so you end up getting kind of bogged down in this internecine civil wars, right, where there's disagreements over what policy path you should take, personality disagreements, just ego and, you know, I, I, one of the funders in the tobacco control movement had this great quote in the book. She was like, this is a movement that eats its own. You know, like <laughs> you had extreme activists on one hand who just wanted to put the tobacco industry out of business altogether. You know, we know this stuff kills you. We know it's addictive. They've lied. You know, um, what, why even have this as a legally purchasable product, right? And then you had like kind of more moderates in the movement that – Okay, we're not going to put tobacco out of business, but how do we curtail it? So how do we just cut smoking rates? How do we make it unsexy and just fight it um, uh, as as much as we can, right? And in each movement we studied at, at the gay marriage movement, which we talked about a yeah. moment ago, you know, when they come up with that 10, 10, 10, 20 equals 50 plan, look at each state individually, that helped their movement a lot because at that meeting back in 2005 mm-hmm. when the leaders were getting together and it was just a depressing moment because they were, you know, on the ropes. Um, a lot of infighting was happening in the LGBT community. You know, there was a camp there that said, we don't want to go for full marriage. It's too traditional. You know, we don't want to be like straight people. Yeah. So why are we even doing this? Right. And then there was a camp that said, we don't really care about full, you know, legal marriage in, in the church. We just want civil union, civil partnerships. I want my partner to be on my health benefit package. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to visit him at the hospital if he's sick, you know. And then you had um, a camp that was kind of hell-bent on marriage, right? So so there's all this infighting, and and then that strategy enabled them to say, okay, well, if you really just want to work on civil unions, go to the states where you think you can pass that and work on that. If all you want to do is get LGBT Mm -hmm. discriminatory laws off the books, that is, is a huge, sorely needed campaign as well. Those camps can go work on that. So that enabled all the different factions to kind of work in a way that they felt was best for the movement, and it kind of added up to a whole that was greater than the sum of the parts. Mm, that's such a great example. And you, you know, you remind me on the micro level 
we I do some skills based coaching, negotiation skills, that sort sort of thing. And what you're reminding me of is we've got uh, people, advocates who are are approaching this in a real win-lose way. You know, it's all or nothing. <laughs> yeah. And then they make the movement from a win-lose strategy really to a win-win strategy where everybody can get what they want <laughs> if they pursue the particular state that um, that satisfies their interest and position. Exactly. Ah, and I know we're going to get to leaderful because I'm right now in my head thinking to get that to happen <laughs> requires uh, an awful lot of um, negotiation and empathy and understanding and getting to uh, the reasons behind rather than the positions. How about um, breaking with business as usual? Well, that chapter is really interesting because that insight really came out of this um, notion that you're just talking about that win-lose, black versus white, you know, us versus them, zero-sum mentality. And typically you think of movements, social causes as rising up against, you know, corporate wrongdoing and business is the bad guy and they're polluting the environment and hurting workers, right? Whereas there was some of that, some of the movements certainly had that dynamic, but by and large, most of the movements also moved forward with the help of business and not traditional like corporate philanthropy. Um, you know, one example, since we were just talking about gay marriage, you know, advocates early on in California started working on relationship recognition laws, getting municipal government employees and then businesses to start recognizing same-sex partners early as the 80s, right? So that by the time that final vote came in California, whether or not to allow LGBT marriage, uh, 80% of the people working in the state of California, if they were in entertainment, tech, finance, already got same-sex pet benefit, hmm. right? So they, the norm had been shifted because the, the companies changed their policies. And, and you're seeing it a lot today in the headlines, for instance, around gun reform. So Walmart, Dick Sporting Goods, made these unilateral decisions to stop selling assault weapons, to raise the age for gun purchases to 21, because those are known ways to curtail gun violence, right? And these are tough choices for businesses to make because obviously they take a top-line hit, they take a sales hit. And um, But, you know, we see a movement among businesses today to try and create shared value, shared social, economic, and environmental value. Right. There's more than one bottom line and businesses are sort of coming to recognize that. Um, so we looked at all the different ways that how businesses can play a role in these movements. And it's kind of counterintuitive um, because, you know, you have to dig beneath that kind of classic, you know, good guy versus bad guy framework. Mm, very good. Can you give an example of that in the environmental uh, arena? Well, the environmental arena is interesting. I mean, it, this working with and through business really is the reason why acid rain got solved more successfully and more quickly than, you know, any other environmental challenge. Um, what you saw, you know, back in the 90s, you had acid rain, you know, it would peel the paint jobs off of cars. It was 
crumbling museums and um, grave tombstones and everything in between. And so the idea when the Clean Air Act amendments were coming up in the 19, in 1990, George W. Bush was president. And this is a interesting story because it tells you how much politics have changed since then. George W. Bush wanted to be an environmental president. Mm. Um, sorry, H. Bush. He wanted to differentiate himself from Ronald Reagan, right? So um, Reagan was known for trying to dismantle the EPA, and he took apart all the mental health institutions, et cetera, defunded them. So Bush wanted to be this con- compassionate conservative, and he was going to make the environment his cause. It sounds completely crazy today <laughs> to have a conservative Republican, but that was the that was the landscape back then. So when the Clean Air Act amendments came up, Environmental Defense Fund, a green group, had proposed this cap-and-trade solution. And cap-and-trade basically is, you know, you allow companies to trade pollution credits, um, and overall there's a cap that has to happen across the industries. But each business can kind of figure out how it wants to get there itself. Mm -hmm. And it essentially was very controversial because it you paid to pollute. You could pay another company and say, I'm going to keep putting out acid-causing, you know, uh, elements into the atmosphere. But the other guy had to cut his by more. And so by setting up a market, um, that's how businesses traded around and ended up getting the rates down more quickly and uh, more pervasively than if a government regulation had tried to do it from a regulatory perspective. So, so that, that, that was a market-based solution that favored business, but it created an environmental impact right. um, that benefited the whole society. And it was very repugnant to many people at the time. You know, David Brower, the late great head of the Sierra Club, was lambasting Environmental Defense Fund. You know, you're sleeping with the enemy. You're doing deals with the devil. Right. And, and, and business really was the enemy. And environmental and, – and today many businesses are, right, whether you're in the – coal industry or others where, you know, it's not in line with where climate action um, proponents want to go. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was the kind of a breakthrough at that moment um, in, in time. And how can you use market forces to try and advance an environmental goal rather than kind of just fight against Right. Oh, so good. Leslie, I I really am looking forward to your final chapter, and that is Be Leaderful, which is quite appropriate for our show, Leadership in Action. So what do you mean by Be Leaderful? We talk about leaderful movements to contrast winning movements from kind of one of two extremes that most movements and campaigns can fall prey to. So on, on on one hand, you know, on the far left, you can have movements that are leaderless, right? Hmm. They're kind of chaotic. Um, there's anarchy. And a classic example of that would yeah. be the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? Um, you know, hmm. there was plenty of protests and demonstrations and down on Wall Street. And um, there was this, you know, cry to give attention to the 99% and the imbalance of power between them and the 1%. And, you know, they, they purposely had a flat leadership structure. It was totally non-hierarchical. Hmm. Everybody had an equal voice. And they had a list of more than 20 different demands that went from everything from workers' rights to corporate wrongdoing to animal rights and everything in between. And in that kind of chaotic uh, environment, it, it's, it's, you know, 
colorful and gets headlines, but they weren't really able to get traction, right, mm-hmm. and, 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 and drive a, a kind of quantifiable impact. So that was kind of a leaderless approach. And then on the far right, you could have movements that are too leader-led. And by that, we mean <laughs> top-down, employing some of those command and control leadership structures that you see in businesses or military units. And in that case, when you try and run things like a business, um, you don't um, – it just doesn't work because – and, and leader fall is the balance between those two extremes, right? Where, and, and what we mean by leader fall is they're pushing, these movements are pushing power out to the grassroots, like we talked about. Um, it's decentralizing authority. It's empowering networks to drive the cause forward, right, from the bottom up. And to do that well, the leaders at the top, the top brass at the, you know, the NGOs that are at the top need to, do some pretty counterintuitive things. They <laughs> they need to give power away. Yeah. They need to, you know, not hoard resources, but share them across the movement. They need, to, you know, they give credit and limelight to the grassroots members rather than always trying to be on the Diaz or the keynote speaker at the protest or what, you know, what it is. And it's, and a big part of it is letting the people with the lived experience of the problem lead and be the spokespeople of the movement. So if it's victims or survivors or in the gun rights cause, gun owners and, you know, the people who care and want to defend and protect this right that they hold so dear. Um, so letting them lead. And it's a art as much of a, as a yeah. science. And, you know, what you might classically learn in business school or in a corporate setting just doesn't apply, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, very different. Leslie, I'm really pleased we have Neil from Florida, and he has a question about a social movement he's trying to start. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Leslie, thank you for being on this great station. Thanks. <laughs> thank my you. My question is, uh, my family, that we now have four adult children, but when, we, when they were young, we created a, a, a platform for, fam- for our family for once a week to have a family meeting after a meal, but not a family meeting where, you know, there was tragedy in the family or a change in job or, I hate to say it, divorce. And we were having a safe zone, and we created family table time. <laughs> and it's a tool to help families connect around the dinner table. And, and I'm, I've tried to do different things to, to get a social movement going with this. And I was just curious to know if you had any just high-level thoughts on getting a social media, a social movement created with something like this, where we're helping families to put down technology once a week and really get off the expressway of life and connect with their family. And the tool helps families do that with content. But uh, any thoughts from a social platform? Sure. I think, you know, looking for networks and uh, institutions where, a similar set of values come into play, right? So what, you know, whether people connect through their churches uh, or, you know, places of faith or through their local schools where you can get the message out offline, um, you know, when Mothers Against Drunk Driving got started to combat the drunk driving uh, challenge, it was setting up networks of kind of victims and 
uh, survivors of drunk driving caches, their family members, and connecting them a local support group. So how can you, you know, maybe pick uh, 10 local communities and get 10 families to commit to doing this and then talk about it? And they tell 10 friends, and that's how you kind of expand exponentially. Mm. That might be one piece of advice. That's a great question, Neil. Thank you so much. And Leslie, great, great answer. Uh, so, Leslie, we don't, we have just a couple minutes left, and I'm wondering if you have had, or maybe maybe as a young person growing up, did you have a cause that you wanted to champion? Well, I was very involved in my middle and high school growing up in the outskirts of Philadelphia and in, in Pennsylvania around um, service and wanting to engage, have opportunities for me and my friends and classmates to engage in service. And this was coming up in the 80s and then, of course, got caught up in the national service movement. And now we have AmeriCorps and Teach for yeah. America and Habitat for Humanity and all these great ways to do domestic peacetime service. So that's certainly something I was involved with. I was just speaking at an event recently and was reflecting on the first nonprofit that I engaged with in high school. We oh. banded together to raise money for a, uh, a Braxis, which was a teenage drug and alcohol um, abuse center and a recovery clinic. And, um, you know, I was reflecting. That was the 80s, and back then it was pretty much, you know, beer, wine, liquor, pot. These were the you know, addictive substances of choice. And, and the problem was hard, but it wasn't as complex and hard as it is today because mm-hmm. then you went through the crack epidemic and now we have the opioid crisis. And, you know, the same elements that helped curtail drunk driving and abandoned smoking, I think, are going to come into play mm-hmm. with this opioid epidemic that we um, we're facing now. I heard uh, just recently of an, of an organization, which I didn't even get a chance to study, but it sounds really promising, called Fed Up, and it's family members, mm-hmm. uh, parents of addicted to opioid children, grandparents who are raising their grandchildren because the natural mother or father is addicted and can't um, parent, right? Um, and, of course, the bankruptcy and the, the just the emotional toll this is taking on families around the country, and it's these networks of concerned family members that are getting together to say, you know, what can we do at our local and state level to stop this? You know, we can't just wait around for, you know, the whoever's in the White House to decide to, you know, release some federal funding. The change has got to happen from the bottom up. And um, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like it should be that way, but mm-hmm. that's how it happens um, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, we have this great constitution and a free and open democratic society, but um, we don't have a central government, right? And we right. don't have uh, power and control coming out of Washington. It, it really comes, most of the powers are vested in the states and the people. So you got you to gotta start there. And I think Obama said it well when he talked yeah. about, you know, change doesn't come from Washington, change comes to Washington. Oh, well, that's a great place to end. And Leslie, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.